Hello everybody, this is Sim Green with Rattle Magazine. This is your Rattlecast for Tuesday, March 17th. We have a great show for you as always. Ellen Bass is here, one of my favorite people. I, I was about to say poet, but she's much more than my one of my favorite poets. She's one of my favorite people. I got to do a workshop with her uh, maybe well, I guess I guess uh, six years ago, and um, it was such a great writing workshop. Um, I, we just love Ellen Bash. We interviewed her in issue number 40. Um, so she's going to be on in just a few minutes. As always, we like to start out just to let people trickle in and make sure everything's working before we start with our guests. We like to trickle in and um, do a warm-up poem. Now, today's warm-up poem is, um, you know, I just clicked the random button. What came up this time was You Moved Your Whole Town by Paul T. Corrigan. Here we go. Now, this was a necrastic challenge poem from back in October 2017. Uh, you can see the picture there on your screen that is Biltmore Backyard by Rob Schaffer. And uh, You Moved Your Whole Town was written by Paul T. Corrigan, and that was uh, Rob Schaffer's choice for the necrastic challenge back in 2017. I can't believe we've been doing an necrastic challenge uh, for that long. And um, here's his poem. This is um, You Moved Your Whole Town. You Moved Your Whole Town. The fog at the Biltmore estate hangs thick and low over the rolling hills. The white oak, red maple, and green spruce. The ground yellow with stubble and leaves. A hundred dollars admission will show you the banisters, the forty-three bathrooms, the gilded age. But you need no tour guide. You are an exile, returning, looking for your home. For one generation, seven generations ago, you lived on this land. Two years after emancipation, two weeks after Appomattox, two days after a Union general marched through the last of the Confederacy in the North Carolina mountains, you founded a free black town here. Old Shiloh. In Old Shiloh, you built your own barns, you baked your own loaves, you blessed your own God, you betrothed your own lovers, you buried your own dead. In Old Shiloh, your children knew not shackles for the first time in three centuries. Who can know the weight of that? In Old Shiloh, you lived twenty years till George Washington Vanderbilt asked you to move. What could you do? You moved your whole town. He didn't threaten, didn't have to. You'd had a long education in giving whites what whites want. Why decline the cash? Why risk your chance to start again? Your farms were falling apart, they said. You were happy to sell, they said. You are always happy, they said. You moved your whole town. He paid you to move, more than the going rate, promised jobs, and delivered. You built, built more. You tended his trees, grew his garden, cleaned his cutlery, fixed his food. And you moved your whole town. You moved your people, your plows, your houses, your cows, your wagons, your mules, your clothes, your tools, your Bibles, your church. You moved your cemetery, carefully exhuming both headstones and bones. Who can know the weight of that? Surely 
When you moved, you left things behind, things you might now find. The hills stayed, the trees, a broken axle here, a lost axe head there, a chipped plowshear, a mallet, a pulley, a chimney stone, the wild growth from an untilled field. You listen for your own coughs and laughs and love cries. You would have welcomed a neighbor. He came as an owner. You inhabited the land. He uninhabited it. Who needs two hundred square miles of backyard? It's not the deeds on file at county records that define belonging, but the deeds of adults and children walking and working the soil. You, like the Cherokee before you, belong here. These mountains stand older and grander than a white man's ego. His 250 rooms can't contain all this roiling air. The big house will crumble, and old Shiloh will still be here. You must have known, because you did not salt the ground when you left. Who can know the weight of that? That was Paul T. Corrigan reading his poem, uh, You Move Your Whole Town, for, uh, written for the October 2017 Ephrastic Challenge. Uh, if, you're, if you're watching, you can see the picture here that was based on it's a, it's a field um, sort of with fog in the, in the fall. And um, the Ephrastic Challenge is something we do every month where we post a picture, uh, some kind of piece of art, either photography or a, a painting or something like that, and we encourage people to write poems about them. And um, the artist and myself um, each pick a poem, and uh, we publish two poems based on the art. So it's a way to break writer's block and encourage people to share poetry. So if you're not participating in the Ekphrastic Challenge, please start doing that. We do it every month. There's a new picture up this month. Just go to rattle.com and... Um, you will see Ekphrastic Challenge up there, and you can see what the photo is for, for March. Now, our poet, as we mentioned today, is Ellen Bass. Um, Ellen is, um, and we published her in uh, several issues of Rattle, and we interviewed her in Rattle number 40 here. Uh, you can see the cover here on screen now. And her new book just came out from Copper Canyon Press, which is Indigo. And um, let me just read the description. I thought I was going to describe it, but then the description is exactly what I was going to say, though. So, um, so in Indigo, Ellen Bass deepens her mastery of the praise poem, exploring the duality of loss and exquisite tenderness that lives at the heart of almost everything. Bass plums the miracles from the stuff of life, the grit of oysters, taking an old dog out to pee in the night, shopping at Ross. In a series of aching love poems, the mundanity of marriage gives way to vivid sensuality even as the weight of age and illness, Eros bends its neck to grieve what will be lost. And so this is uh, Indigo by Alan Bass. And um, here she is on the screen. And, and don't forget to unmute your microphone, Ellen. Ellen Bass, hi. Uh, how you doing? Hi, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and, and how are you doing with um, you know, the, the coronavirus and all that? Because that's what everybody's talking about. Are you you're keeping safe right now? Yeah, we're in the Bay Area. I'm in Santa Cruz, and we're in uh, shelter in place. So it's um, really important. I, I, I imagine that everybody listening knows about that. But if you are living in a part of the country where you're not being 
told yet to take social distancing really, really seriously. Uh, this is, please read up mm -hmm. because every day that we do this in advance of when it's crucial uh, is going to be hundreds of thousands of lives saved. So it's not about your own personal risk tolerance. It's about each of us doing what we can as a community to try and save others. Mm -hmm. uh, what my what my son was told when they were his his work it closed down to face to face contact is essentially we should all behave as though we have the coronavirus, mm -hmm. and if we do, then we will be keeping each other safe. So, I know in certain parts of the country this is not yet happening the same way it is here. But the next two to three weeks are really crucial. And, and the way I keep thinking about it is there's never been a time when I could save people's lives by doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, usually it takes doing something extreme to save a life, but you can actually do it by, by staying away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was going to, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I just wanted to address it up front and, and say, you know, it's really like a tsunami that's coming. You know, and the people who are warning mm -hmm. us ahead of time are like mm -hmm. people who see the, the ocean pull out yeah. and know what's coming. And it's not here yet, but, uh, but it's coming no matter where you are, like a huge wave, like a tide that's not going to stop rising for a while. And um, so get to higher ground, I think, is, is what... And if you, you know, it's, it's kind of wild because what seemed alarmist even a week ago um, is normal now here. And um, it... it it's it's moving so fast in that way so but but the thing i think about is how if you think that this is alarmist and you're and and it turns out that we don't have as big a disaster as like is happening in italy you can think that you were right and it was all alarmist but in fact it's because we're all the rest of us <laughs> are protecting you <laughs> yeah yeah, well, um, I, unfortunately, I, I, I don't think there's any way to stop it. So I don't think there's any hope of um, um, it being alarmist. Yeah. It's past that point. And, um, and it's, it's coming for, for every town and community. And uh, we just have to hunker down and, um, you know, appreciate. Really, I, I've been following it since um, early, late January when Wuhan shut down. I, I really noticed I was a molecular biology major. I worked in an RNA lab back in college and um, wanted to be a virologist. And really, for the last six weeks, I've been um, loving every moment I have that's normal, which is a really strange thing to do. Yeah. But I like play tennis with friends and um, things like that. And just uh, like admiring the fact that we're doing this right now, because there's really not, you know, it's going to be a long disruption. Um, anyway, yeah. now that we've got that out ahead and we know you're safe and okay. we're safe. We got and, it out of the way. And right. Right and, be, and we have. Yeah. We have art. We have poetry. We do. Um, and Rattle will always be here. I work from home. I've been self-quarantined for a week. And um, we are, you know, everything is just right in our house. Uh, our kids are home from school. I'm just going to the store. Rattle will always be here. So um, I hope you'll always be here, too. Uh, so why don't you start out um, just to get us into the mood of the book with a, with a poem. Sure. Anything you want to start with? Sure. I think I'll, I think I'll start with um, the first poem. And it's called Susha. It's on page three. Susha. I like cutting the cucumber, the knife slicing the darkness into almost transparent moons, each with its own thin rim of night. 
I like smashing the garlic with a flat of steel and peeling the sticky, papery skin from the clove. Tell me what to do. I'm free of will. I carve the lamb into one-inch cubes. I don't use a ruler, but I'd be happy to. Give me a tomato bright as a parrot. Give me peaches like burning clouds. I'll pair those globes until dawn. The syrup will linger on my fingers like your scent. Let me escape my own insistence. I am the bee feeding the queen. Show me how you want the tart glazed. I still have opinions, but I don't believe in them. Let me fillet the supple bones from the fish. Let me pit the cherries, husk the corn. You say how much cinnamon to spice the stew. I've made bad decisions, so I'm grateful for this yoke lowered onto my shoulders, potatoes mounded before me. With all this destroyed, look how the world still yields a golden pear, freckled and floral, a shimmering marvel. It rests in my palm so heavily, perfectly. Somewhere there is hunger, somewhere fear, but here the chopping block is solid, my blade sharp. Thanks, and that was Sushi by um, Ellen Bass from her new book, Indigo, which just came out from Copper Canyon Press. Um, Ellen, I was looking back at our um, interview uh, from Rattle Number 40, and um, one of the things that you didn't really talk about too much was um, your journey through poetry, which I thought is a really interesting question, because you have this whole sort of detour into the courage to heal. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about why you fell in love with poetry and, um, and, and how you sort of, your, just your journey to this point? Um, how did you get here where you are? Well, I can talk a little bit about it, but it, it is a... a, a 55-year journey. I'm almost 73, and so I can't talk about it in detail or else um, you'll be here with me all night. Uh, But I love to write poetry from when I was in college. I started writing poetry, and I loved reading poetry. I loved learning poems by heart. I, I can't really say what it was. I can't pinpoint what it was that precisely what what made me so drawn to poems. But it was there and it was it was a passionate love affair from the beginning. And I I um I have had some wonderful mentors along the way. I studied with Anne Sexton at Boston University. My first mentor was Florence Howe, who's co-founder of the Feminist Press and still a very dear friend. Uh, She and I co-edited the first major anthology of women's poetry, No More Masks, that was published in 1973 when we didn't have access to women's poetry. In, it, it was hard for it to be taught in schools, even if people wanted to, because there were no anthologies. There was, there was no way to um, find these poems very easily. And um, then my most recent mentor, uh, when I came back to poetry after my after my uh, long hiatus, I, I took about 
I guess about 10, 15 years when I worked with survivors of child sexual abuse and wrote The Courage to Heal. And then I came back to poetry and Dorianne Lux was my mentor who taught me really everything. She was an amazing teacher. I thought that was an interesting coincidence because we uh, published Dorian today as the featured poem about about the I coronavirus. Saw. Yeah, so um, yes, yeah, 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 kind of ironic or, or coincidental, not ironic. But um, <laughs> um, do you think? Um, I always wonder about people's because I had this experience where I didn't think I was going to be a poetry kind of person, and then I wrote a poem where I felt like a magical understanding that I didn't realize I had or something like that. Is there a poem that, that, that clicked for you that like made you realize that poetry was something special that you wrote that like surprised you that it, that ever happened to you? Always. <laughs> well, do you remember? No, I'm saying like, is, was oh, there, you mean like the first time? The first time. Yeah. Did you have an experience no. like that? No, mm -mm. <laughs> no. I think when I was writing it, when I was really young, I was just, I don't think I had, I don't think I had that kind of understanding. I knew that I was in some way trying to grapple with my experience, with my relationship to the world. I think that's what we're always trying to do with poems. We're trying to, trying to um, combine in some way, have a relationship between the way we think and the way we experience the world and the world itself, um, and but I don't I don't think there was hmm. one poem where that was the turning point. Yeah, I think in part I was very young. You know, I was just so, and and or I've forgotten. That's possible. <laughs> well, um, um, but now it happens. Oh. Yes, now it happens, and then. Once that happens, you don't ever see things the same way again, mm -hmm. which is, of course, what we're trying to get to when we write a poem. We're trying to change ourselves. We're trying to actually have a transformation. And I talk about that so much that sometimes when it actually happens, it surprises me all over again. And I go, yeah, this is like, really, it's not just somebody says, oh, yeah, we want to be changed or we want to be enlarged or we want to see the world differently. But that's, that's really what we're always going for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I think to to me, I feel like um, what's really going on is we have the the right and left brains, and um, what's really happening is that the the left brain, which is our focused attention brain that has a map of the world and sort of thinks it knows what it knows, you know, there's the, then there's the right brain that's holistic and understands things that it can articulate. And I think that discovery is really a um, a synthesis between the two brains when the two brains are suddenly in a new agreement. And then and the, the map of the left brain expands. And I think that's what art does, no matter what kind of art it is. Um, I think that's really the job of art, is to, is to expand that map of the world that we have and, and, and create new empathy and new understandings and new meaning out of the really complicated chaos that we're really living with mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And that's what, that's what I'm, of course, trying to get at in Sushef, too, mm -hmm. you know, the... You know, my opinionated brain is is very entrenched, and, um, <laughs> and and it's limited. It's limited. So there's that plea, mm -hmm. that plea to 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 be open to to being guided, directed, led, mm -hmm. not by myself, but uh, by what my so sure thinking. Mm -hmm. 
thinks and is so often wrong. Yeah, yeah. I've made so many bad decisions. <laughs> um, let me just say, I'm going to have you read a couple more poems. Let me say, if you have any questions for Ellen Bass, uh, use, them, use the uh, YouTube chat window if you're watching live, and I'll pass them along. Um, also, if you're watching live... I really love questions. Yeah, it's Ellen, nice. Ellen so, loves questions. This is a, I really want these to be, you know, even before this whole everybody's locked down, we're stuck in our houses, um, I really wanted to <laughs> have this be a communal experience where everybody participates. And uh, we're sort of sitting around all together with a new poet every Tuesday and um, so, yeah, please do share your questions. I'll pass them along to Ellen. And also, if you're watching for the first time, we have um, almost 50 people watching live right now. Um, usually it's, oh, it's like great. double the normal. So um, make sure you subscribe and click the like button because that really helps. Um, if you're watching after the fact, archived on iTunes or whatever, click the um, give it four stars, share it on Facebook. Wherever you're watching this, share it. That really helps to get poetry around, which is needed today more than ever, I think. Um, anyway, Ellen, do you want to read a couple more, maybe two poems, and, and we'll keep going? Sure. The Small Country. Unique, I think, is the Scottish tartle, that hesitation when introducing someone whose name you've forgotten. And what could capture Cafune, the Brazilian Portuguese way to say, running your fingers tenderly? through someone's hair. Is there a term in any tongue for choosing to be happy? And where is speech for the block of ice we pack in the sawdust of our hearts? What appellation approaches the smell of apricots thickening the air when you boil jam in early summer? What words reach the way I touched you last night? as though I had never known a woman, an explorer, wholly curious to discover each particular fold and hollow without guide, not even the mirror of my own body. Last night, you told me you like my eyebrows. You said you never really noticed them before. What is the word that fuses this freshness with the pity of having missed it? And how even touch itself cannot mean the same to both of us, even in this small country of our bed, even in this language with only two native speakers. That was The Small Country from uh, Indigo, Ellen Bass's new book. Why don't you read another one, Ellen? Great. I'll read, um, let's see, what will I read? I'll read this one. Um, this is on page 38. It's called Ode to Zeke. I wrote it when my beloved dog was close to death. Ode to Zeke. O breathing drum, O cask of dark waters, O decaying star, my barking heart, my breaking brother, what will seep into the space your body leaves. O oh, huge 18-muscled ears, oscillating ossicles and cochlea, your busy canals, now hollow caves of quiet. I have said your fur is black, but you are silvered, rhymed with frost. You are the new moon, you are light in the dark house. How long will I see your shadow? Oh, 
heavy hunk of existence. Oh, great flank I have rested my head upon when I was too weak for human touch. Sleek leading man, you debonair dog. How people on the avenue stopped to swoon. Oh, splaying legs once faster than rabbits, canines slashing flesh, urgent thug, unstoppable thrust. Oh, happy snapping at the wind. What do you remember now that you are mudslide, glacier melting, cliff collapsing into the sea? I have memorized your milky breath, your ballet leaps and whirly gigging, your princely patience as the children dressed you. Soccer, Zeke, in jersey and shorts, one paw on the ball. Snorkel, Zeke, with mask and fins. Bar mitzvah, Zeke, in a yarmulke and my father's silk talit. Oh, my text of decrepitude, my usher to death, companion of 10,000 years. I'll fry you a fish, I'll sit by your bowl eat from my hand. I have nowhere to go. There's another poem from Indigo by Ellen Bass from Copper Canyon Press that just came out. Um, uh, do you still have your thing? Is it still plugged in? Because I still keep it. It is. Yeah. Why don't you okay, just unplug so it? Let's... let's do the speakers. Yeah. And, and shit and smuts, but it sounds totally fine for them. So I have like really good headphones and I'm listening to this stuff. So maybe it wasn't even that bad. But um, anyway, we're good now. Um, speaking of Shannon Smuts, um, she had a question for you. If I scroll back up, let's see if I can find it. She said, what is your favorite poem that you ever wrote? Which is a, it's a good question. Oh, I, I think I have, um, two favorites and one is, uh, my poem, What Did I Love? from my previous book, um, and the other one is the title poem from this book, hmm. Indigo. Oh, yeah? Do you want, should I read it? Yeah, why don't you read that right now since it, it came okay. up? Yeah. Yeah. This is on page 60, Tim. Oh, thank you. Indigo. As I'm walking on Westcliff Drive, a man runs toward me, pushing one of those jogging strollers with shock absorbers so the baby can keep sleeping which this baby is. I can just get a glimpse of its almost translucent eyelids. The father is young, a jungle of indigo and carnelian, tattooed from knuckle to jaw, leafy vines and blossoms, saints and symbols. Thick wooden plugs pierce his lobes, and his sunglasses testify to the radiance haloed around him. I'm so jealous as I often am. It's a kind of obsession. I want him to have been my child's father. I want to have married a man who wanted to be in a body, who wanted to live in it so much that he marked it up like a book, underlining, highlighting, writing in the margins, I was here. Not like my dead ex-husband, who was always fighting against the flesh who sat for hours on his Zafu chanting Om, and then went out and broke his hand, punching the car. I imagine when this galloping man gets home, he's going to want to have sex with his wife, who slept in late, and then he'll eat barbecued ribs 
and let the baby teeth on a bone while he drinks a dark beer. I can't stop wishing my daughter had had a father like that. I can't stop wishing I'd had that life. Oh, I know, it's a miracle to have a life, any life at all. It took eight years for my parents to conceive me. First there was the war, and then just waiting. And my mother's bones so narrow, she had to be slit and I airlifted. That anyone is born, each precarious success from sperm and egg to zygote, embryo, infant, is a wonder. And here I am, alive, almost 70 years, and nothing has killed me. Not the car I totaled running a stop sign or the spirochete that screwed into my blood. Not the tree that fell in the forest exactly where I was standing, my best friend shoving me backward so I fell on my ass as it crashed. I'm alive, and I gave birth to a child. So she didn't get a father who'd sling her onto his shoulder. And so much else she didn't get. I've cried most of my life over that. And now there's everything that we can't talk about. We love, but cannot take too much of each other. Yet she is the one who, when I asked her to kill me, if I no longer had my mind, we were on our way into Ross, shopping for dresses. That's something she likes, and they all look adorable on her. She's the only one who didn't hesitate or refuse or waver or flinch. As we strode across the parking lot, she said, okay, but when's the cutoff? That's what I need to know. That was the title poem from Indigo by Ellen Bass. Um, Ellen, what, so what is it that, um, that um, makes that one of your favorite poems? Uh, like what, what, what makes a poet's favorite poem? I know, I know the answer for myself, but I'm wondering if it's the same for you. So what, what, it, what did, can you ask the question again? What is, <laughs> what, so, I, mean, I can't quite say what makes it one of my favorite poems, but there was something that you said right after that that I didn't quite hear one word of. It. Oh, I was just saying, but, you know, I have my own, you know, opinion of, of what makes my own favorite poems, my favorite poems that I've uh-huh. written. So I'm wondering if it's the same for you. Well, it's a poem that took me a good 40 years to write. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I've written many, many poems about my daughter and about her father and about those kinds of feelings. And they pretty much all wound up in the dear poem cemetery where the poems go when they don't quite manage to become poems. They try. and so I, I, there was a lot of satisfaction for me in being able to somehow um, distill and have all the parts come together in this poem. Mm-hmm. The poem does a lot of moving around, and uh, there's there's a it feels like something that's that that cooked for a really long time. I saw this man on Wiscliffe Drive where I take a walk almost every day um and all of a sudden i just saw these tattoos on him and understood something about this 
manifestation of being in a body mm-hmm. that everything just uh, happened very quickly for me after that. I went home and uh, grabbed a piece of paper and in about three minutes wrote down the outline of this poem. And um, I didn't have all the language yet, but I, I knew how the poem wanted to move. And that's a very, very unusual experience for me. I, I never outlined a poem. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever outlined a poem in my life. But I, I had to just get down the thoughts mm-hmm. as, as, as they sort of scrolled through my mind. And then I waited a number of weeks until I really had time and solitude to, to be able to make the poem and write the lines the way I wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing really came in a, in a rush. It came very quickly. It only took 40 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, well, that goes along with what, what I was thinking. It was just that the, the, our favorite poems, I think, are the ones that have the most meaning. Like they make the most um, new understanding or something, because that's what it seems yeah. like everybody's really writing for. And trying to pass on is like is a new understanding and a new perspective and putting things together in a way that fits, and and when we can do that, that's really the way that poems take off. Um, Cynthia White asks, um, I think that's one of your students because she has a poem coming up on the open mic she sent us a little yeah. earlier. But she says, do you think the book Indigo has a theme, and if so, what is it? Yes, I think so. Um, my my books don't usually have themes. My books are usually kind of, uh, I think of them as what I wrote that worked, that had a reasonable amount of, uh, you know, the poems worked. And, and when I have enough of them, then they have to make a book. And um, I think it, um, I, I can't, quoted exactly offhand but Picasso said something like um, I, I would hate to be one of those artists who only puts things that go together in a poem I put whatever I want in my uh, in a painting you know I put whatever I want in a painting and the, the things just have to learn to get along together and uh, that's sort of how most of my my books are they're just the poems that I wrote during that time period that that stayed alive. But um, I did, I think that there is a theme through this book. And um, my wife was going through uh, a very difficult illness during this period. And a lot of the poems are really grappling with my experience of that, not not so much with her experience, because that's, that's hers, but with with mine, my reaction to it, and my struggling uh, with it, and um, coming out through the other side of that experience. So those poems are kind of make a wave through the book, and then there are other poems that are uh, c- kind of woven in. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you want to read maybe two more, and then we'll do a couple more questions? Sure. Sure, I'll read. I'll read a poem from that, so that that's not just sort of hanging there theoretically. This is called the Long Recovery. The Long Recovery. When she would come home from the strawberry fields, I'd empty the dirt from the cuffs of her jeans, 
scrub the mud ground into the knees. It made me want to tongue the sweat of her throat, taste salt in the dusty crevices. No, no, I say now to my dumb sex that like a dog can't understand. I know I'm less than a speck on the planet, the planet less than a speck, and so on. Is it sacred or insane that I matter so much to myself, that she matters so much to me? What use is my turning her again and again toward the sun? I'm old enough to know there's nothing we love without incurring the debt of grief. The maple leaves just edged with crimson, the bright yellow breast of the warbler, its sweet, sweet, sweetie cry. Her hand as she lifts a cup, riddled with veins, ruched, the loose skin almost transparent, almost familiar as my own. How can I hurl myself deeper into this life? Why do I think there's something better I could be doing? I miss her. I miss her. I believe in her animal scent. I believe stars burn in the blank day sky. I believe the earth rushes through space, though I can't feel the slightest breeze. That was the long recovery from Indigo. How about one more, Alan? For now. Sure. I'll read this poem. Um, it's dedicated to my um, my oldest friend, uh, Dan Gottlieb, who uh, is, um, we've been friends since I was four and he was five. And um, often when I ask him how he was, he'd say, not dead yet. Dan was has been quadriplegic for about, I guess, since he was about 30. He's 74 now. And uh, he's a psychologist in Philadelphia. And uh, if any of you are listening from Philadelphia, you probably know him because he's had a radio show um, on... Um, W-H-Y-Y, for many, many years, called Family Matters, and is a very beloved Philadelphian. Not dead yet, for Dan. The apricot tree with its amputated limbs like a broken statue. Condors, blue fins, lioness at Ambicelli, her blood-stained mouth. She rises and walks beyond the shade of the thorn bush, crouches and pees. My mother-in-law, should I kill myself, she asks me, her mind an abandoned building, a few squatters lighting fires in the empty rooms. Fire, wildfires, the small animals running, paramecia swimming in a petri dish, my son's rabbits nibbling grass. Soon he'll cradle each one and speak to it in a silent language before breaking its neck. But today, in the feverish heat, he wraps his old t-shirt around a block of ice for them to lean against. Hair, 
nails, heart carried in ice, sperm carried in a vial between a woman's breasts. Bach, Coltrane, the ocean, even with its radiation and plastic islands. Farmed salmon, even with their rotting flesh. Two young women on the beach at Cala San Vicente. One kisses the shoulder of the other before she smooths on sunscreen. Wind, the bougainvillea's shadow shivering on the cold wall. Stone, the quiver inside each atom. Sappho, mere air, these words, but delicious to hear. And that last is, is from Sappho. Those are her words, of course. Mere air, these words, but delicious to hear. It's just beautiful poems. Thanks so much for sharing these, Ellen. Um, we have two questions happening at the exact same time, so I have to ask this. Um, so Roni um, Bopla and Julie Murphy both asked about um, the chronology of the book. So how did you put the poems in order? And Julie Murphy asked, uh, was there a particular way that the poems spoke to each other to go in the order that they, that they did? Yes, this is my least favorite part of making a book of poems is putting them in order. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, I just tear my hair out through the whole process. Um, I, I waited too long to try to put these in order so that I was also working under a certain amount of time constraint, <laughs> although... Um, in a way, I'm glad that I was because otherwise I would have just made myself miserable for longer. And um, with with these, uh, I I tried to I, certain things had to happen before other things. Like the dog had to be alive before he died, um, and it, there was the trajectory of my wife's illness, and then there was also. Um, my mother-in-law was a big part of this book, and she also had to be alive before she died. So there were certain things that had to happen near the beginning, and then there were things that had to happen in the middle and things in the end. And trying to make those threads move along also without jarring the reader too much was really challenging. And um, I, I do it like many writers do. I, I, you have to I don't know how anyone could possibly do it without spreading all your poems out. So mm -hmm. you know, to just kind of spread them all out. And I can't really get down on the floor anymore. So I had to <laughs> you know, make ta different card tables all over the place and spread them out. And the other thing is I can't, I, I have to do it all. I have to do each, each go all at once because I have to hold everything in my head and uh, I can't like work on it for a couple hours mm -hmm. and then go away come back to it or else it's it's all gone so i have to just spend long long days and um i feel very happy with the order uh but i i, I definitely was angsting over it mm -hmm. as i did well i think it worked really well i mean i, I read the whole book straight through uh, this afternoon and there definitely it does feel like an arc that that's very intentional so i think it works it's funny though it's Thank such you. a hard thing to do um i have you know, I've copped out every time I've I've been confronted with that. So in Rattle, it's just by last name, alphabetical order, so I don't have to think about it. And with my my one book, um, I I was trying to order it, and then um, 
I realized it's it's American Fractal is the book. It's about order and chaos. And so I thought, I'll throw it down the stairs, pick them up, and, <laughs> and that'll be the order. And that's the order that the, it's the order the poems are written in, thrown down the stairs and reach, you know, and picked up in that direction. Um, and it worked wow. out really well. I think the gods of chaos are um, better at, than us sometimes. Um, so um, uh, Deborah Kiva has a question here. Um, she says, how do you decide where a written line ends? Is there a good book you'd recommend for guidance in that area? So line breaks, which is a, it's a good question for, for poets because it's hard to know how to do it. So, so how do you conceive of line breaks? What do you think about line breaks? Yeah, there, there, is, a, there is a book, and um, unfortunately I'm bla- blanking on the name of it, but there's a book that came out recently that I actually just ordered, um, and probably if you Google it, it will be, it will be apparent. Um, but I think that making lines is one of the hardest things to do. And it looks so simple. I mean, it looks like it should be so simple, but it's something that I struggled with for a long, long time. And I think that one of the ways to think about it is not so much in terms of the line break, but the line. How do you want to make the unit of the line? And because we just read Sappho, I'll just go back to her uh, to answer it in one way. It, we we only have frag, fragments of Sappho's poems, and so, but that fragment is wonderful. And if you think of your line as trying to have something wonderful in each line, hmm. and that's that's too high a bar. There's going to be some lines that that you can't do that with because uh, you need to to make uh, the line before the line after a certain way. But you, if there's something, if your line was all that survived you in some centuries would that line just all by itself hold something is is one wonderful way to think of it the other way that i i think of it when i'm especially when i'm teaching but also for myself is don't end your lines in a natural stopping place the way that you would naturally read unless you have a really good rationale for doing it otherwise and in jamming it mm-hmm. and um if you can make a rationale for yourself as to why you're ending the line there, then you're probably in pretty good shape. Because often I'll say to my a student, well, why did you end the line there? And they go, well, I don't know. <laughs> so so before you're done, just look at every line and say, no one else has to even believe your argument. But just do you believe your argument that that's a good place to end that line? Mm-hmm. And if you could make that that argument for yourself and believe it, then you're probably pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way. I never heard it put that way. To, to think of it, you know, as as you were saying that, I was imagining if somebody discovered your poetry as fragments, like would that fragment hold up? That's a really cool way um, to think of it. Um, just to, to share, I always think of it as like a the pace car for your um, for the reader. So you, you tend to read shorter lines more slowly, and so it sort of keeps the way you know it sort of teaches you how to read as you go through the poem in my impression that's right and, and also more like how much do you want to pay attention to the sound versus how much do you want to pay attention to the the image in your head that the movie that's being built in your head as you're reading um that's just that's kind of how i conceive it but i, I love that idea about um about sappho that that you shared um Oh, um, Kim Tedrow suggests, was it The Art of the Poetic Line by James Longenbach that you're thinking of? 
Mm. It's interesting I'm because um, that was my professor. I mentioned being a, a molecular biology major as an undergraduate. He was the one. I took his class at the University of Rochester as an elective, um, and, and that sort of made me fall in love with poetry. And that's why I'm sitting here today because of James Longenbach. So it's a great, he's got a few books um, that are really great. Boy, I wish, you know, my, the, the thinking part of my brain, you talk about the left and the, and the right hemispheres of the brain, but the way that I really notice my brain divided these days is the thinking part and the remembering part. And the thinking (laughs) part, thank goodness, is working pretty much the way it always has. Mm -hmm. But the remembering part is really down the drain. So (laughs) (laughs) I I never had a remembering part. So that's that's totally fine. You're functional. Don't worry. (laughs) But you know, the more I think about it, though, I think that suggestion is the right one, the art of the line. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, let me ask you something else. You're, you know, you've really. I took your poetry workshop in Mallorca, Spain, mm-hmm. and um, it was just such an amazing um, experience to me because you had. I've never been in a space that was so sort of welcoming and so you know. There's the talk of, of a safe space, but there was never a, a space that felt as safe. I know a lot of people are. Um, interested in like doing their own poetry workshops and stuff. How do you do that? How do you make a safe space for poetry? Oh, that's another one of those uh, 50 year questions. (laughs) (laughs) I've been sitting in circles with people since um, really over 50 years. And so I think that, um, you know, in that time, you learn a lot, but but there's certain things just from the get go. Uh, one one thing is that everything is um, th- that that people need to. Oh gosh, where would we start? Where would we start, Tim? Okay, <laughs> let's let's start here. If you are the facilitator of a group, then that's your responsibility to make that group safe. Mm-hmm. If you're in a peer group, then the group takes on that responsibility together. So they're kind of different things. Um, but we, we, the first is respect that we agree to respect each other. We agree to respect the work that comes in and to talk about it with care and to be, uh, thoughtful about how we express what we're going to say uh, to each other, realizing that there's that, that we're, we're dealing with really tenderness always. And not necessarily because the content is vulnerable content, that we're not necessarily revealing something personal about ourselves, but we're revealing how our minds work. We're revealing our sensibility, and um, that's we're we're taking risks all the time in that, hoping that it will be received with that kind of respect. So I would say it's really about respect, and you can establish this very very quickly. We've been teaching in the uh, in. Um, uh, Salinas Valley State Prison and in the Santa Cruz jails. And it's amazing how all of the teachers who are doing this work um, are able to establish a really safe place, even among 
uh, people who have not ever had a safe place to share their feelings and their thoughts and to have really a kind of truly civil dialogue with each other. And in about, I would say, five or ten minutes, that gets established just by having really clear ground rules and by the teacher Mm -hmm. demonstrating that. So I think that's one of the the big things and and having clear understanding of what it is that we're doing together. Mm -hmm. And a peer group can set this up or a teacher can set this up. This is how we're going to do things. And I I am everything that you want to say can be said in a kind way. You know, sometimes, you you know, you might want to say, you know, um, that something isn't, I I know when when I was, you know, giving instructions um, for just how people should behave in group, I teach at Pacific uh, University's low-res MFA, and we give out a guideline for the groups of, of how we should behave toward each other. And uh, I was asked to make some suggestions for that. And again, I was talking about, it's all about language. I mean, almost anything, I think language is just so important in how we, uh, how we set up safety for each other. And just something like, if you can say, you know, it, the poem starts to drag here, um, you know, it gets off to a good start, but here it seems like it's really starting to, drag is really different than I'm so bored in this poem. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Right? You know, you can hear one and the other, you just feel terrible if somebody mm-hmm. says that to you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what I've learned also the longer I teach is that that rigor doesn't have to be sacrificed for respect or kindness. And I think my classes every year get more and more rigorous. I think my students would attest to that, mm-hmm. that, um, that we keep setting the bar higher, uh, we keep working harder, we keep wanting to make our poems stronger. And um, it's exciting to me how much success my students are uh, receiving, not only in their own gratification, but in the outer world, um, with the response that they're getting when they send their poems out and winning prizes and having books published and mm-hmm. it's so wonderful uh but all that can and all that happens along with that respect well when i was in your workshop um somehow you got me to write a poem about my most shameful experience um (laughs) and it really was my most shameful experience and i cried while reading that in the little circle and, uh, yeah. and I've never read it anywhere else because i knew i couldn't hold my tears back if i did and um can you talk a little bit about how that works? Because I feel better having written that poem and to sort of getting that concretized or sort of put it in a box or something. There's something about writing that is really healing um, and sort of makes, I don't know, it, it, it puts your psyche together somehow. You have a whole book and you have a whole chapter of your life that's about this, the courage, the courage to heal. Um, how is it that writing is healing? Can you, can you explain that a little bit? Well, um, the, yeah, that's a big question. We've thrown a few things into the basket, so I'm going to just kind of take it maybe one by one and not try and answer all of that all together. 
I think that what happens when you write a poem is that you move the experience a little distance from you. You're not, you're, you're the, if you write from personal experience, from your, your own personal experience, you, you're not only the person who went through this, you're also the writer writing about the experience. And so you, you move it to uh, a safe distance, but not so far away from you that you're not connected to it anymore. But you make just this little gap and it's that gap in which you can actually explore the experience, look at it, handle it, um, and tell your story about it. Tell, you shape it. You become not the person to whom it has happened, but the shaper of that experience. And so much is, you know, you know, you know, who's going to tell your story from Hamilton, right? Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Well, you tell your story. You make of that story. You know, what's the difference between being victimized by something that you then, you know, carry in that way your whole life and somehow getting some kind of agency around it? Well, it's, you know, how, how are you going to hold it? What, what are you going to make of it? And um, so you get, you get to shape it. You get to say, this is what it means. I'm going to make meaning out of it. And this is the meaning that I'm going to make out of it. The other, the other thing I think around shame is that um, you join the human race. You know, I mean, my wife is always saying to me, you know, like, what makes you think that you should have done any better in your life than somebody else? Mm. Well, I thought I should. I, th- I thought that I, I had a lot of advantages in my life, and I should avoid. I should have been able to avoid all the big mistakes. Mm-hmm. Well, hello, you know, hello, human. You are just a human being, and so there's this kind of um, we look at ourselves as a as as a human instead of as me, because we're just stand-ins in our poems. Our poems, my poems are, are not really about me. They just use, I always think of it this way. It's as though you lived out, you know, in some kind of uh, very remote place. And you, you couldn't go to stores and buy cloth to make a quilt. You had to wait for a covered wagon or something to, you know, come along and then the peddler would take out their cloth and they'd have maybe a half a dozen bolts of cloth. And those were the, that was the cloth that you could buy. So you bought some of each one. And that's like your material. It's the same thing in your life. You've lived through this limited number of experiences. That's what you've got to work with. And so that's what you make. If you write about personal experience, that's what you make your poem out of. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's not about me. I mean, no one reads my poems to find out about my life, no, and, and no one reads any poem to find out about somebody's life, really, because it's not like a novel or even a memoir. No one thinks, well, what happened to Ellen after that poem? You know, then what happened? No, they they're not really thinking about. And then what happened? Because the, a poem is all about the reader. 
And so you just use your personal experience to try and make something that the reader then can see themselves reflected in, Mm -hmm. that they can understand something more about themselves or the world that they live in. And so all of that just removes it so much from anything like shame. In fact, you know, I, I myself try to exaggerate all my faults as much as they are willing to be to, to make the poem. And there's something that's so wonderful at looking at yourself that way. It's so freeing. Because in life, you know, we, we don't want to acknowledge our faults and our mistakes. They don't it doesn't feel very good to go around looking at that. But in a poem, it's just a wonderful space in which to do that. Mm-hmm. And we get to to shape it. We get to release it. Um, the 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 writing as as healing that we you know I worked with working with survivors and the courage to heal. I think has some of these qualities, but also a lot of things that are not exactly the same. And there, uh, there was so much power in simply being able to break the silence and tell the truth and be heard and be believed and, and be told that it wasn't your fault and you're not the only one and you're not to blame mm-hmm. and you didn't deserve to have that happen to you. And a lot of the writing, um, when, when we write about traumatic experience that way, we really, it's a kind of almost putting ourselves into a kind of trance to um, go back and uh, dive very deeply back into that experience. And, and you, you, many, many people who ex- who used writing and use writing now to explore trauma find that it's, it's a way to go very, very deeply, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes more quickly than you intend. So it's, it's, it's good to make sure that you have a safe space in which to do that. If you do that. Yeah. Are you familiar with, um, James Pennebaker's work? He's, um, he's actually quantified. Um, I can't remember where he's, he's a sociologist, um, and starting sort of in the late 90s, so after The Courage to Heal came out. But he um, has done studies, actually, where, um, you, you know, the empowering act of taking control of your own narrative is better for your own psychological progression than either therapy or pharmaceutical intervention for, um, you know, for, yes. um, you know, just, just healing trauma. Um, it's a yes. really important thing that we do as poets. Um are you familiar it's with this work? Yeah, I, a little bit. Yes, a little bit. I am. Mm-hmm. It, it, one thing also that astonished me about writing is uh, that um, people who have various uh, illnesses that they're dealing with, and ones that we don't think of as being very mind-body related, there have been studies where they've been, um, you know, asked to write every day and not necessarily even about the topic of their illness mm. or their pain or anything like that. And just the fact of writing every, any, every day about anything, they also had enormous improvement. And not just with things like that we normally think of as being very mind-body related, like inflammatory diseases and things like that, but um, things that you just would never 
think could be affected mm -hmm. by writing. Yeah, I, I always wonder, um, you know, we know the placebo effect so well, but there's also the nocebo effect, which is the negative. And I always wonder if um, what's really happening is that if you haven't come to terms with your trauma, if you're if you you're punishing yourself in a way and creating your own nocebo effect, and maybe what's really happening is you're curing yourself from nocebo. Do you think that's possible? I think that's too complicated <laughs> for this for me, not not for you to think it, but for me to speak about it. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I I think that um, I think I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. um, you might have to tell it to me again, and I'd have to concentrate yeah, yeah. harder. You want to say it again? Well, just the 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 nocebo effect is. Um, Okay, so it's like the placebo, but the opposite. So instead of um, feeling better based on like a sugar pill, you make your feel worse based on some kind of really right now. Um, a good example is how many people think that they have coronavirus right now. Per I think I might have had coronavirus because we had a um, friend who came from overseas and I had a cough. And is this like a mm -hmm. mild form of it? I don't know. So we're quarantining. Um, mm -hmm. And but but. Really, the you know, if you work in the pharmaceutical industry, um, it's really hard to make a drug be better than a placebo. Like that's kind of the you know, the placebo effect is huge, yeah. but yeah. but we never talk about the nocebo effect, which is the opposite, which is the negative um, aspect of that, where we can actually inflict self harm on ourselves somehow through our mental processes, you know, and uh, and our belief that we're we're sick. And um, I often wonder if if. Mm -hmm. the the pro the um the way that we the way that narrative heals trauma might be sort of like curing the nocebo that you're giving to yourself if that makes any sense yeah okay so i see why i got i got um i got i, I see why i couldn't answer right away because the trauma that i have so much you know so many years of experience working with people with is an actual trauma. Mm -hmm. And so a theoretical trauma is just out of my, you know, wheelhouse. Oh, I just don't mean, I don't mean theoretical. <laughs> I mean, like the way that people sort of blame themselves, you know, and it, when you take control of your own narrative, it's a way to stop blaming yourself for what happened. Does that make sense? Um, it just, it, it it's not that it sounds wrong to me. It's just that some of these things can can begin to sound too easily mm -hmm. like sound bites, and then we have another way to torment ourselves. Yeah. So oh, definitely, I yeah. could start tormenting myself that I'm self blaming myself, mm -hmm. and if only I wrote and didn't do that, you, you know, you see what starts to roll out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's I, definitely I huge. So I. I, I you know, having been in this trauma field, even though I haven't been in it for many years now, but having spent that many years in it, I just always hesitate to to say too many things, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> except the things that I'm really, really sure mm -hmm. of. And, and that's one of the things when Laura Davis and I wrote The Courage to Heal is we just tried so hard not to say anything mm -hmm. that we weren't really, really sure of yeah. because people were actually going to take that advice. 
Yeah, totally. It's a yeah, huge, totally. huge burden um, to to have. Like, I, I know that I'm just rambling myself, but um, and no one's gonna <laughs> listen to me, so it's fine. It's not even no, but. Yeah, exactly. Um, let me ask you one more question, and um, it, we're going kind of late, but it's just I I love talking to you, so I I kind of want to extend it a little bit. Um, can I ask you about the um, the the Me Too movement and the concept of sort of blacklisting people? Um, because there's certain people that have done bad things. Um, and what do you think about, it's just something that I struggle with myself, um, without, you know, naming names or saying anything about, about what's going on. But, um, I feel like as a publisher, um, I can't know whether or not somebody is guilty or innocent whether or not they've, um, been punished sufficiently for what they've done, whether or not they've, um, um, atoned and, and sort of know, understand what they've done and will not do it again. So my position is always to not cut people off. Um, you know, we've published people on, we've published murderers who confess to murder. We've published people on, um, death row. Um, Damien Eccles, we published was on death row when we published him and later he was exonerated. Um, so I feel like as a publisher, I just don't have the authority to make those choices, um, about who to publish and who not based on what they've done as human beings. Um, and I want to live in a world where we have a sense of forgiveness and, um, we can, you know, heal and become better people. And so it seems like allowing for that is necessary, but it is really hard, um, do you have any sort of feelings about that? Like, are there some people who have done things um, that they should be shunned and not published? Or um, just what do you feel about that? I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're hard. It seems to me those are really hard decisions. And uh, that hopefully our society is in a transition. And uh, hopefully we're going to create a different kind of culture where we don't have this level of predatory behavior mm -hmm. that has always been there, at least since recorded history. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to make a gigantic shift uh, because it's never been safe to be a woman or a child um, in terms of uh, sexual abuse. And then, of course, there's murder, you know, has it ever been safe to be anybody? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, it, you know, then you can think about police violence, you know, has it ever been safe to be a person of color? I mean, there's, you know, just so much, so much here that um, I think that I don't think there's, um, you know, I'm, I'm, this isn't something that I'm really an authority on, mm -hmm. uh, I think that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see the Me Too movement. I think that uh, the, e these movements build on each other. I think I would like to see the Me Too movement connected more to the child sexual abuse movement. And, and I would, you know, we, we talked about the child sexual abuse movement being built upon the domestic violence movement. You know, I mean, the, this... The, it, it would be good if we didn't forget what came before as we are trying to build for the future because I think we'll be stronger. Um, so I think the Me Too movement is crucial. And will there be casualties? Yes, mm -hmm. there will be. 
And some of them I feel bad about. I mean, the one that I would say I feel the most bad about is Al Franken, you know, where, mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me if you're on Saturday Night Live and you're fooling around all the time in incredibly, um, you know, transgressive ways that I don't know Al Franken and maybe, you know, maybe he did terrible things, but I, you know, it, just from what we know publicly, that didn't seem to me enough to leave the Senate and I would have much rather had him stay in the Senate. So, you know, I think that, that, that there are casualties that just shouldn't be, but, um, I don't know how to avoid those mm-hmm. and make progress. I mean, these are just really tough. These are, these are questions that, you know, as a poet, I don't, uh, I don't really, speak to very often because I I don't know any more about them Mm -hmm. than the next person does. Yeah. Well, well, you're honestly one of the most compassionate and sort of loving people that I've ever met like this, that radiates out of you. So I, I really wanted to see, it's it's the truth. Um, So I really always wondered what your opinion about that, because it's something that I struggle with all the time. It's a hard, a hard thing to figure out how to deal with in this world, because we don't want to encourage that kind of behavior, which is is endemic and it's everywhere, and it's there's no, I don't know, it's it's deplorable and horrible, and um, I don't know, but yeah, there, I, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have a society where we have the right kinds of treatment for people, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, I certainly don't, you know. The, having done a little teaching in the in the prison and jail um you know i don't want any of the people that i've taught to have to stay in those prisons mm-hmm. and jails yeah i mean i you know they, i mean all i want to do is take them out on a field trip and you know walk them by the ocean and you know cook them soup and things i mean it's it's just you know it's just horrible absolutely horrible um, on the other hand, do, you know, do I want, uh, these priests to get away with what they're doing and have done for these, you know, years and years and years and years and years to these children? No, I want them punished. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, it's, it's really, it's really difficult, but I think that, I think we better think up, you know, some, it, 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 in a way, I get more angry at, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say more, but you know, equally angry at the people who are covering it all up, mm-hmm. as as I do at the people who are um, being abusive directly. Yeah, and I just think that we better come up with some kind of uh, deterrent, uh, better perhaps than prison, but at. I mean, if people are sexually abusing children and if people are raping women, then, you know, we can't just say, you know, I hope you will, uh, you know, I mean, this is just obvious. Mm. I'm just babbling here, yeah. Tim. You've got, you've gotten me into trouble here. You know? <laughs> this is like not my, my field of what I'm capable of speaking, you know, really articulately mm. about. But, um, you know, I, I just don't know what we're going to, do around this yeah. and i'm i'm glad that we have the me too movement and i'm of course feel terrible for anybody who gets crunched in the wheels of that who shouldn't be but um we can't just go on the way we've been mm-hmm. we can't just keep allowing this to happen yeah oh my god yeah i completely agree 
Um, anyway, we're way over time. Do you want to finish out with one last poem? Sure, sure. And and maybe you should like cut all this out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good discussion. I mean, this is um, you know poets off the cuff. We're we're not like the you know the Poetry Foundation in the um, Chicago. <laughs> Um, NPR studio where everything's cut and edited. This is real people having real discussions. Real people bumbling, just bumbling. bumbling. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, poets you know deal with the most you know, the most difficult topics that we have. That's what poetry really does: is try to make sense out of the things that we haven't made sense of yet and haven't figured out yet. So um, it's important discussion to have. So I'm glad to it hear is, your it insight. Is in a way, you know, I mean, the thing about a poem is that the poem is is maybe this is a, a good way actually to speak to this um and and you know part of why i'm so babbly here is that um i i i teach and live by as i write vivian gornick's line uh about our job as writers and she says you know our 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 job is not to answer the questions but to deepen them Mm -hmm. and so i think when i try and start to answer something i really feel like i i can't not that i don't you know like i said you know i have opinions i just don't believe in them you know (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, i had on my refrigerator for a long time that um quote from from um our our old president bush who you know looks like a a dream president from here but you know it was making fun of him he said you know i I have opinions i have strong opinions i just don't you know always believe in them (laughs) and i had it on my refrigerator because that was me and i i i would always joke you know that that bush and i had one thing in common and that was it um but you know as a poet i'm really not trying to express my opinion Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to deepen the questions Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to get away from my opinions to instead explore the territory. So when I'm, when I'm asked to talk about something that isn't really, uh, you know, my wheelhouse, like what should we do with people who uh, commit crimes, then I, I, I don't have a lot to say. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I'm going to, with that, I'm going to turn to the poem. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks. This is, this is the last poem in the book. It's uh, called Any Common Desolation. Any common desolation can be enough to make you look up at the yellowed leaves of the apple tree, the few that survived the rains and frost shot with late afternoon sun. They glow a deep orange gold, against a blue so sheer, a single bird would rip it like silk. You may have to break your heart, but it isn't nothing to know even one moment alive. The sound of an oar in an oarlock or a ruminant animal tearing grass, the smell of grated ginger, the ruby neon of the liquor store sign, warm socks. You remember your mother, her precision a ceremony as she gathered the white cotton, slipped it over your toes, drew up the heel, turned the cuff. A breath can uncoil as you walk across your own muddy yard, 
the Big Dipper pouring night down over you, and everything you dread, all you can't bear, dissolves, and, like a needle slipped into your vein, that sudden rush of the world. And that was Any Common Desolation, the last poem from the book Indigo. Um, Alan Bass, thanks so much for joining us. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. I wish we could talk all night. Um, I just love you so much. Thanks so so much much. for joining us. I love you too. Um, Good night. Yeah, good night. So, um, yeah, that was uh, was Ellen Bass. Um, Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us and contributing with your questions. So that was her book, Indigo, which just came out from Copper Canyon Press. Um, You can find... Copper Canyon Press and buy the book, of course, at I think it's coppercanyon.org. Um, Alan Bass's website is um, ellenbass.com, spelled just like you would think it is. So pick up, pick up a copy of Indigo if you haven't uh, picked it up yet. It's a beautiful book, um, beautiful poems as you heard today. And um, Ellen's really one of my favorite people. Um, so it's great to be able to talk to her. And I hope you enjoyed this, too. If you did, please do click the like button and share this wherever you will. Um, That really helps because we're trying to spread poetry around the world instead of um, spreading the usual things that get spread, which is mostly angst and animosity. We love poetry in the depthful way that we engage with things. Now, um, we do have a prompt every week, and um, hopefully I did this right. Let's see. Um, So last week's prompt was a motel with no windows must use the words descent and twin. That was our last week's prompt. Now, these are Megan's prompts. Um, Rattle's assistant editor and my wife. She's really, she's a great poet and uh, got some good prompts here. And um, now my poem is nothing because with everything that's going on, I did not manage to um, write a poem this week. I have one in my head. So let me say again, I'll read it at the weekly open mic. It's in my head. It's going to happen. Um, I know what I'm going to write about, but I didn't get a chance to because I've been so dang busy with all the craziness of the world. But Megan did manage to write a poem because she is a brilliant poet. And here's Megan's poem. I actually got her to record it this time. So here's, um, here is Megan's poem, A Motel with No Windows. A Motel with No Windows. The sun makes its descent now only in theory. You think there's nothing to see until there is nothing to see. Not even the dark rainbow of oil in a parking lot. A human brain will make do with what it's got. The TV is a satellite. The ceiling cracks are stars. The twin lights above the red bed are the two moons of Mars. From inside a Mars crater, Curiosity the rover saying happy birthday to you, which is sad or happy or nothing at all, depending on your view. That was Megan's prompt poem um, from last week. That was A Motel with No Windows. The crazy thing about these prompt poems is that every week it seems to um, apply to something. So we, um, and, you know, and, and we set these poems out like in December. We, we made these prompts and we had no idea what we'd be doing. We ended up like one week as a museum. We went to a museum. Another week it was an arcade. We ended up going to an arcade. This week it's A Motel with No Windows and um, it's like national or global quarantine day. So we're all sort of living in a motel with no windows. Um, so I told Megan that, that she has to start writing some prompts that are about like good things like um, vaccines and um, 
winning the lottery and things like that. So hopefully she'll do that coming up. Um, this is the last prompt, actually, that we made back in December. Uh, oh, wait, wait, I have one more poem. Uh, this is Carla Schwartz. I'm sorry. This is a hospital room from our prompt, uh, from a motel with no windows. And um, here's Carla Schwartz reading Hospital Room. Hospital Room. My father's motel room, paid for by Medicare. Three walls and a curtain, but no windows. Instead, a bench seat along the wall, opposite his twin bed, as if meant for an audience, as if he is the window, as if anyone would sit eye level with his feet, their back against the unforgiving corner to watch the stream of blood and mucus flow from his lungs in slow, deliberate descent. That was Carla Schwartz with her poem uh, from the prompt last week. That was Hospital Room. Now, Carla Schwartz, as a poet, filmmaker, and photographer, and blogger, her books include Intimacy with the Wind from Finishing Line Press, uh, learn more at carlopoet.com or find her on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, where she has many millions of views at CB99videos. That's at CB99videos. Okay, so next week's prompt um, is a girl lying next to a radio in 1932. And the suggestion is to make it a sonnet. A girl lying next to the radio in 1932, suggestion, a sonnet. And quite frankly, I am terrified at how this is going to manifest in my life. I hope that our only connection to the world is not a radio by next week. Well, we couldn't do a Rattlecast if uh, that was the case. So hopefully it's not going to be the case. But Megan is kind of psychic, and um, it freaks me out. So that is the state of affairs. Now, um, next week, our poet is going to be... Ah, Jimmy Pappas with uh, the chapbook. If you're a subscriber to Rattle, you get a chapbook included with every single issue. And for the spring, the chapbook was Falling Off the Empire State Building by Jimmy Pappas, a beautiful book about life and love and family and um, immortality. And Jimmy Pappas is going to join us for Rattlecast number 34. Uh, hope to see you then. And let me remind you once more that... Um, we're going to have an open mic on Facebook at least. Hopefully YouTube too. I'm, I don't know if I can figure out how to stream it in both places fast enough. But if you go to facebook.com slash rattle magazine, all one word, on Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, you can join in the same way you do it here through Skype, through the phone, um, pre-recorded. I'll just play some stuff. It'll be a lot of fun. We'll hang out and share some poetry to kill some time uh, in these crazy times. Now, um, um, I should say before we go, I'm just supposed to. Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995, and we are just here because we love poems and think they should be shared. If you agree and enjoy what we do, we don't ask for money or donations or anything like that. All we ask is that you share the poems that we publish uh, through social media, share these podcasts, and help spread poetry on the, around the world because poetry is something the world needs now more than ever although it always needs poetry 
Um, that's all for tonight. I hope you have a great night. Hope you stay safe and uh, keep your social distancing up. And I will talk to you soon. Have a great night. Goodbye. <laughs>